All right, team, welcome back to the Man Talk Show. So good to have you here. Joining me today is Doug McKinley, and he spent the first 15 years of his vocational life serving as a clinical psychologist, and he founded his own group practice in the early 90s. And so he worked in that space for quite a long time. After meeting a a colleague, Pat Williams, renowned leadership coach and author at a conference on marriage counseling, Doug transitioned from clinical psychology into serving clients as an executive leadership development coach and consultant. And part of this transition included him moving on from his clinical practice and founding an executive coaching firm. Uh, In 2012, he created a successful consulting company and with a business partner that, uh, that they ran together until they actually sold it later in 2017. He's also the author of a book, The Resiliency Quest, A Journey of Personal Leadership Development for the Thriving Physician, uh, and the co-author of a book called Go Positive, Lead to Engage. So today we're going to talk quite a bit about adversity, bouncing back from it, leadership specifically, and we're going to talk about the shifting landscape of leadership and, and, and what it looks like within our modern day culture, some of the challenges that leaders are facing you know, where people maybe go wrong within within their own self-leadership and how we can actually begin to uh, begin to lead ourselves more effectively through the challenges and 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 the obstacles that everyone naturally faces. So you don't have to be a leader to get something out of this podcast because it's not necessarily about uh, how you lead a company or a business. It's really more about how we all lead ourselves. And so that is what we're going to dive into today. So without any further delay, please welcome Mr. Doug McKinley. All right, Doug, welcome to the Man Talk Show. How are you doing today? Very good. Thanks for uh, inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. Well, previous guest recommended you highly. And so <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed my conversation with him. That was Daniel Kwok. Thank you for connecting us. And and if you're tuning into this show and you haven't listened to the one with Daniel, I would definitely head on back and, and tune into that because that was a phenomenal conversation about the economy and, and all sorts of all sorts of topics that we that we dug into. Um, Daniel is a great bright hope for the future of our country. So I'm a big fan of him. Yeah, he's definitely he's he's a sharp one for sure. Yeah. Gives the millennials a great name. Thank you, Daniel. I agree. I agree with that. Well, let's dive in, Doug. Let's just start with with the big question, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that made you who you are today. What a great way to start, first of all. I need to I need to borrow that idea. Um <laughs> I think about these things often, so I'm just gonna just get, go raw because I think it's better to do that than to try to hide. So uh, by far, I mean, it's not even close. The most defining moment was in when I was uh, 14, my parents uh, announced to us that they were getting divorced. And I grew up in a very conservative family. My dad was, I'm kind of a PK, a pastor's kid. My dad was a bivocational pastor of a church, and it just devastated me. It rocked me. It shattered my image of family and, you know, the nice little neat family growing up in Saginaw, Michigan. And it was just it was just crushing. I ended up living with my dad and my brother and my two sisters lived with my mom. And it was a defining moment. I had to really dig in and figure out what was probably the seeds that planted me to want to go and save all marriages and become a, a psychologist. So it was it was definitely a, a career defining moment. But more than that, just a reality check for the bubble that some children grow up in, that life will be perfect. Yeah. 
you were like 14, I think you said, right? All right. Yep. Yeah. My, it's interesting. My wife is a marriage and family therapist and, um, you know, sort of similar thing. Her parents got divorced when she was young and then went through maybe a little bit different. They went through the longest divorce proceeding in New Jersey's court history. Wow. It was like, a you know, nine or 10 years or something like that. Uh, of legal battles, which is just absurd, but it makes sense why she does what she does today. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, she knows through the research. Those that's the I mean that's the worst prognostic indicator of healthy transition is how long it takes. So that's yeah. just unfortunate for her. So yeah, yeah, certainly informed uh, a lot of her work. But okay, so you got into a little bit later on. You got into clinical psychology, and it sounds like you really focused it on on relationships. Did you have a chance to work with quite a bit of men in, in your in your practice, or was it mostly couples? Yeah, well, it started out with men. Obviously, I was I was a guy, so men were more comfortable with me. Um, worked with a ton of men, uh, and I enjoyed the married the couple kind of dynamic. So I. Well, let me put it this way. I would rare, I would not work with an individual if I didn't meet with their spouse, if they were married. Mm. And so if it was a female, I always met the husband and vice versa. But that was just kind of my own principle. Um, because homeostasis, uh, the change principle, requires that if I'm helping one improve, it's going to be disruptive to the system. So, yeah, so it was, sure, worked with a lot of, of men and uh, we're unique creatures, that's for sure. Mm, yeah, I mean, I, definitely. Can you say more about that? I was curious because you're, you know, you went you went from clinical psychology into uh, executive coaching and you know working with right. execs, and and that's in some ways I, I would imagine having been in sort of both of those spaces that you have an opportunity to see men in, in very different ways, different roles, and I'm, I'm curious as to you know whether. Working with men in your clinical practice, uh, you know, a few decades ago versus working with men today in an executive sense, are some of the challenges the same that you've been seeing? Or, you know, have men gone through a, a bit of a, a progression based on what you've seen? Like, is the, is the, lands, is the masculine landscape and narrative changing? How would you sort of comment on that? What a great question. Yeah, it's, I, I, I it's certainly changing, but I think it, my experience has, there seems to be a demarcation at around, let's say, current date, like men that are under 40 or 45 versus men that are over. That sort of line of the baby boomers and into the Gen Xers really seems to be the most predictive for me. Big boys don't cry, right? The whole thing that we mm -hmm. were trained when we were kids uh, was very prominent when I grew up and, and others in my age. And, and now I'm finding the really a beautiful openness to the uh, later Gen Xers and millennials. They, they seem to be, they're open to, you know, seeking therapy, to being soft and being vulnerable. And it's just, it's actually, I think it's a great thing. But unfortunately, I think it has more to do with generational transfer of wisdom as opposed to my generation actually embracing it. My generation, I was born in 1962, is still pretty protective. We isolate, and when men isolate, bad things happen. So mm -hmm. we, we tend to be very competitive and, and ambitious creatures, and we tend to not want to gather and, and hold, be accountable because we want to compete. So it's a, it's, it's a recipe for um, problems if we're not more aware. Yeah, you said the generational transfer of wisdom. Were, are you referring to just sort of the 
handing down of what manhood looks like from generation to generation? Or can you just illuminate that a little bit more? <laughs> I wish that I wish that we're talking about that. I, <laughs> I actually one of my favorite things I've done over the years. I, I helped develop a rite of passage to manhood program. We did for many, many years in my faith community, and then I've been able to do it in the nonprofit arena uh, with inner city kids. And Mm -hmm. it's been a great joy and honor. Mostly minority kids, African-American, probably about 80% of our our groups. And so we were able to sort of pass that down formally and, and invitationally. But I think it's through modeling. We're watching, you know, the, the generations are watching us. My kids, they want nothing to do with the way I've, my career has gone. They just mm. think I'm crazy because <laughs> I work all the time and invest so much in it. They, they really, they have a different vibe and they're very, very clear about it, which I'm proud of. Mm. So I think it's more by, we just, <laughs> they're learning through trial and error and watching us and going, uh-uh, that doesn't look <laughs> good. So, but I wish it were more formal. I, I think there are some attempts and podcasts like yours uh, is a great example of that. And I think people are starting to think more that way. And I certainly am. I, I've tried to invest both of my careers in that process. So yeah, I wish there were more. I think we can do better. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree. I think in some ways, you know, this podcast, I had never listened to a podcast when I started it with somebody on my team initially, you know, several years ago that was like, you should, you should have a podcast. And I was like, okay, I didn't really know much about it. And it very quickly turned into this platform where I got to speak with people that were wisdom keepers, whether they were elders in the realm of psychology and the psyche or you know, there are wisdom keepers in, in finances or relationships or sex or, you know, whatever, whatever the field Mm -hmm. was. And, you know, it really sort of shone a light on how little of that I got growing up, you know, how little information outside of sort of reading rainbow and Mr. Rogers, uh, you know, the sort Mm -hmm. of TV shows that, that were, you know, dispersing information. So I, you know, I guess that kind of leads me into this, this question of, have you seen a lack or a void of leadership within the everyday man? You know, do, do you think that everyday men are struggling in some ways to lead themselves, to lead within their careers? Or is this something that, that we've managed to hold on to, but that we can sharpen a, a little bit more? Because I, I kind of want to get into how do we lead ourselves? How do we lead within our lives? What does it look like to lead within our business? Yeah, I wish I could report a more favorable uh, reflection, but I I actually I was on a conversation with a female leader this morning that informed me she asked for her boss if she could get coaching. And his comment was, coaching is for people that have deficits and you don't have any, so no. Hmm. And I'm like, sorry. And so she worked around her boss and found another avenue through me. So we're going to end up working together. But I think that's unfortunately more typical for men is that they tend to really feel the pressure to do things on their own, um, by themselves, without asking for help. So I think self-awareness is, as a gender, I think it's our biggest challenge. We are not self-aware. So I, yeah, I, I can't report a terrific thing there. In fact, it's probably the thing I work on the most. And I get paid very well to help people be better leaders. But mostly what I work on is do you realize how you show up? And I don't know. I don't know, Connor, if you run into this with men, it just isn't in their radar. It doesn't matter. Like they just, 
they feel what I would call as a psychologist, a sense of blind confidence and entitlement to course their way through life. And our culture has accepted it. You know, it's allowed, you know, for the most part. I, hopefully things are changing now, but it's, it's slow. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think there is still that notion of this sort of marble man, the figure it out by yourself, the lone ranger right. archetype that's embedded into masculine culture, you know, within the male culture where we have a sense of, uh, I think it's false pride, you know, that if we can accomplish something on our own, that it's somehow more meaningful than if we got any kind of support. But you know, I think Jung kind of spoke to this at some point in his life, and he talked about how culture and society has uh, sort of put a pressure on men to achieve and accomplish in in a silo, sort of in a vacuum. Yep. So, how do you how do you combat that in in your work? Like, where do you start? You know, if you're working with a executive, you know, within a, an organization or somebody that runs a business, where do you begin in helping them sort of broaden? that awareness and come into contact with even the notion that perhaps support might be beneficial versus a deficit. Cause that's, I think what you said was so spot on, right? Is like coaching is for somebody that has a deficit and it's like, wow, I think that so many people hold that notion. You know, it's like, if I have to go to therapy, it must mean I'm broken. If I have to right. hire a coach, it must mean that there's something wrong with me or I can't figure something out. So I would just love for you to address that directly and, and where you sort of begin with clients. I begin right there. Uh, first of all, if they get to me, um, it's a 50-50 chance that they were pulled by their ear to get to me, right? <laughs> and I don't do punitive coaching. So right. it's, it's usually because there's a developmental opportunity, a promotion, or a vertical space where they're just not functioning well or great at results, but bad with people or great with people and bad with results. That's I usually work on one of those sides of that that equation. I use traditional assessment tools. Um, my favorite is to do is to start with a 360 feedback process. Are you familiar with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So if I can get if I can get them, I've it's the funniest thing. Um, many of my executives are not open to that. They don't want to feel that. I've seen more grown men and women cry in my presence on that than than in therapy. Hmm. We're just very, we're, you talk about union, we're afraid of our shadow self, the part of us that others see that we don't, you know, sort of that hidden blind spot. That blind spot is the place where most of our power comes from, because it's, it's the perceptions that others have of us that if we get access to, man, it can, it can transform our effectiveness instantaneously. But so 360s, um, I have a whole portfolio of different types of tools that I like to use depending on leadership competencies, emotional intelligence. And just I start there and I ask them questions like you're asking me, defining moments. What what do people say about you since second grade? You know, what's what's the feedback you've gotten? What's the what's the negative criticism, the blind spot that you just have overlooked? What have people given you feedback on that you disagree with that you just keep ignoring? Mm. So for me, it was always my organizational skills. I'm just, I'm very creative and right-brained and I'm an inventor. Like I just, the potential is, un, is limitless to me, but the current reality is sometimes eludes me. So, mm. you know, I, got, I hired a coach, uh, have had many coaches and one coach said, Doug, if you were 5% more disciplined, you would just be able to do so much more. And that just made a lot of sense to me. And so I have to add a lot of structure to my life because uh, it just doesn't 
flow from natural energy to be structured and I don't like to be contained inside boxes and, and rules and policies. So I have to bring that into my life, I, I think. And I don't see that as a shameful thing anymore. I see it as smart. Mm-hmm. I don't feel broken like I need to fix it. I feel like, no, this is not my strength. I need to seek others to help me. And that's been a big shift for me. So I try to do the same thing with clients, find out what their blind spots are. Obviously, what are you great at and, and build from I'm a big practitioner of appreciative inquiry. Start from what you're doing well and who you are and build from the strengths, but be mindful, you know, of your weaknesses. Sorry, I went along there. No, no, it's perfect. It's perfect. Uh, I remember I had a cosmologist on the show talking about black holes and and whatnot. And he's like, (laughs) I feel like that was a really lengthy answer. And I was like, well, I feel like you're talking about a a fairly in-depth concept, you know, (laughs) like ask hard questions, get lengthy answers. That's generally the, the way that it works. Yeah. Can you just speak a little bit more? Can you just unpack what appreciative inquiry is for the listener that might not be so familiar with it? In the business world, and certainly in psychology, we would say just building from strengths. In the business world, a lot of people start with what's broken and appreciative inquiry. I forget the author's name, but she wrote a book many years ago. She she brings this frame that let's start from what you have, what's right in front of you, and let's look at that and build this preferred future from that rather than from a deficit. And so appreciative inquiry, anything I'm doing in terms of uh, doing assessments, organizational climate assessments, I always start from what's beautiful about your culture that we can work from. And yeah, there's things that are detracting, but I want to work from that space. And so I do that with my leaders as well. Let's, let's just be, see who you are. A lot of leaders don't even know who they are. <laughs> they don't know who they are or why, you know, that I listened to your podcast on, you know, directing your life. The only thing men are doing is directing their career because they've been told that's where the gold or the money is, but mm. they aren't really directing their lives. So mm-hmm. I, I'm fond of saying if, I wanna, if I'm going to grow a leader, I've got to grow the person. So my, my goal is to help the human being inside the leader role become a better version of themselves. And often that leads to better leadership. Not, it's not necessarily true. A better person still can be ineffective if they're not competent. Yeah, I was going to so, say, do you, do you feel like the pillars or strengths of a leader are different within a work environment than they are within the self or within a family system or within a relationship? No, they're the same. I, I think they're very intertwined. Men particularly think compartmentalized about it, but it's baloney. Women, women are much more naturally integrated. Uh, one author said women are like spaghetti and men are like waffles. I thought that was pretty funny. You know, <laughs> their life. Men, yeah, we have little boxes, you know, yeah. we live in. We yeah. just we just live, we don't live aware of the integration of our points. So, but the problem is, Connor, in the workplace, our strengths as men are not always welcome at home. That mm-hmm. sort of aggression and that that decisiveness, you bring that, that skill set home and it's like, get that out of here. I need... I need some gentleness and I need compassion. And, and, it's, and so we get confused about society's message and reinforcement of what we're good at. And so then we get into trouble when we, we're just not being human at that point. We're being robots or I would say we're actually being programmed, right, mm-hmm. to live a certain way and we're living cluelessly. 
Yeah, I would, I would agree with that. I, I kind of want to circle back on leadership. I, got, I, I keep coming back to the waffle uh, notion. <laughs> I'm definitely that guy that makes sure that every single square of the waffle has equal distribution of syrup in it. Right, <laughs> right. Like, if you're gonna, when and if I do have waffles, there has that probably says something about me and my personality, mm-hmm. but uh, my mentor would say like power and control. We're going to talk about power and control, Connor. That's right. Um, but... I want to come back to this notion of leadership and and how you define it, because I think leadership gets talked about a lot, a lot, a lot. And, you know, one of the things that I mean, even with myself in in the online membership that we have, you know, we've got hundreds and hundreds of men from around the world. And we talk a lot about self-leadership. Thank you for doing that. uh, Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. It is, I think, so important because what I've noticed is that a lot of men come into the space and I start talking about self-leadership. And a lot of guys have this sort of, I know this is important. I don't really have a clue what that is. And I'm not really too sure where to begin. But wow. I know it's something that I'm lacking. You know, we can sort of feel that void. Or there's this blind confidence of like, oh, no, I'm totally good. My life is phenomenal and I'm, I'm crushing it on every avenue. Right. Um, so how do you just begin to define the parameters of leadership, what constitutes as potent leadership or, or grounded leadership, and where does the self fit into that? I know there's sort of a few questions, but maybe I'll just leave that there for you. Well, let me let me start with my preferred, my definition of leadership, which I borrowed from great mentors of mine. I think it'll give us the foundation. It's very simple. It's so easy to remember. It's, it's authentic self-expression in ways that add value. There's two levers on there, right? So the value part is I'm a big fan of the fact if you add value to people's lives, they will value you, right? So if you're adding value to your company, to your family, to your friendships, most people are takers, not givers, right? If you add value, people will value you. So that's, I think that's the easier part. The hard part is being ourselves. A lot of the, at least my culture, Connor, I have to, my generation, it's, it's like being random and being impulsive is kind of what they think vulnerability is or authenticity. And that has nothing to do with authenticity. Mm-hmm. Authenticity is the root word starts with author, right? You're the author of your life. Mm-hmm. Write, a, write a good story, my friend, right? Write your life. Don't let your life be written by psychological traps that the world wants to put us in or boxes or waffles, right? I just did it with our own. (laughs) We're not waffles, but it's just a a reflection of common stereotypes. So don't be a waffle and don't be spaghetti. Be yourself. It's a a groundbreaking kind of experience to be free to be yourself, but in a way that adds value. Yeah, I feel like there's a there's an important utility to leadership, you know, and I think that you point that out in the sense that you're adding value. You know, I, I always kind of like go back to the definition, leadership being a process of, of social influence where you influence one or many people towards a common goal or task. And Beautiful. I think what we, you know, what I often talk about is this notion of how do I influence myself so that I can produce that value, so that I can provide that value, so that I can provide connection and continuity and I think that's where a lot of people bump up against the adopted narratives and stories that they've just inhabited their whole life and have never really started to challenge. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, in, in the work that you've done over the years, are there certain, are there certain blocks, certain obstacles that you see a lot, of, a lot of individuals within their own self-leadership, right? even if we just step out of the work environment? Are there certain blocks and obstacles that you see most people bumping up against when it comes to this sense of being able to 
lead ourselves, lead our relationships, et cetera. Well, let me ask you a question. How do you, how do you not fall into the traps of the narratives? What do you do? Let's just get real here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I get feedback from my team, my, from my friends pretty regularly. Um, you know, I have a solid group of men in my life that reflect back where I'm off base, where I might be missing something, where I'm, you know, acting like a victim or not owning what what's true for me in some capacity. I've set that as a value within my relationship. So that's part of the value structure of my relationship is that we we interact yep. with each other from that place. So I think there's there's the external pieces and then there's the daily, weekly uh, structure as we were talking about before within, you know, doing breath work, doing journaling, meditation, working out, taking care of my body, taking care of what I eat. You know, I'm completely sober. I don't do drugs. I don't drink. I don't do any of those things. And so a lot of that is, you know, going back to the sort of the Stephen Covey, for instance, seven habits of highly effective people. It's like, control what I can control and let go of what I can't. And so that's the the do that's the sort of like dual approach that I take is how can I set up external structures to support me, to help me see the things I'm going to miss? And then how do I set up the internal structures within myself that are going to allow me to operate, not necessarily perform, but operate right. in a really authentic way that's aligned, uh, aligned with me and aligned with how I want to operate and be present for the people in my life. So that's that's what I would say. What about you? Well done, well done. I I, I wish I at your age could do that. Um, what I noticed the theme is it's what. So the biggest barrier is that I think people don't focus from a internal locus of control. So what psychologists call it, they they allow their external influences to shape them instead of just deciding. So I think that's the biggest barrier. Hmm. That I have to work with is you know you gotta you gotta grab the reins, my friend. You know be. Be intentional. All those wonderful buzzwords. Um, the other one is what I would. That's been a bigger, bigger barrier for me is just sort of a growth mindset that Carol Dweck talks about, and it came out of the inner city schools. But it's it's really a barrier for all of us. We tend to create self limiting beliefs. The world. Somebody tells us that you can't do this or you can't do that, and and I I am just convinced that that's just a, a barrier that's unnecessary, right? Mm. We have so much capability. There's so many stories of amazing humans that have overcome this barrier that we all sort of accept as a normal paradigm. And so I think really that internal looks control versus external and then growth mindset are two of the big barriers I have to work on. We have, if we don't play the victim, if we're above that line, if you will, um, and we really think about what's possible, Wow, there's just so much. We can have we can actually have a fantastic marriage. We can be very happy being parents. We can it doesn't have to be miserable. We can be fulfilled. It's never gonna be perfect. We have reality mm -hmm. issues. We can <laughs> we can have a fabulous career. We could nothing limits us. Even if even if our role is to sweep floors, that I've met some of the most amazing humans that sweep floors for a living because they see that as they're grateful. Like mm -hmm. that's their their contribution and they get to go home, you know, unlike me, they get to go home and don't think about work, right? I, I actually envy that sometimes, <laughs> like a nice eight-hour labor, 10-hour labor job where you just let work go. Mm. In fact, I like doing house projects or building, you know, doing different things. I used to paint apartments and houses to get through grad school. I still enjoy it, mm. you know, just getting something done and people are never finished. 
Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that entirely. I think I found a lot of value in working the construction jobs and, you know, working at Best Buy, selling TVs and <laughs> doing, right. doing that kind of stuff. But, but approaching it from that place that you're talking about, right? The growth oriented mindset. So let, let's look at that just a little bit. So Carol Dweck talked about the fixed mindset versus the growth mindset. What are some of the principles that constitute a fixed mindset, you know, uh, and, and how do we start to work our way out of those? I know some of it's like, I can't do those things or focusing on things that we can't control or comparing ourselves to other people, uh, our accomplishments to their accomplishments. What are what are some of those other pieces? Well, one of the barriers, one of the barriers I recently have been really smashing is I'm turned 60 just last week. And I believed that it was out of my reach to be my weight that I was in college. Mm. And I just mashed that barrier and I'm now under the weight I was when I got married. Nice. You know, 36, 37 years ago. So we we say to ourselves, well, I'm too old or worse, I'm too young. The Daniel Kwok we talked about, he was on your podcast. His age does, it doesn't matter. He just he just believes that he's going to, you know, going to create the future that he wants and other want to live. And so it's any self-limiting belief. Um, it could be age. It could be gender. It could be race. It could be like me. I'm not structured and organized, so I can't ever write a book. I've written three, but and I'm terrible at it, Connor. I really am. It's so hard. <laughs> I've written three books, but they were just, it was like therapy, you know, overcoming therapeutic issues to get it done and lots of editing. I was just going to say, like, how do you combat that lack of structure? Because that's, that's something I, I'm with you, you know, like I have a degree in music and I, okay. I'm very like, oftentimes very creative minded. And I've really had to implement a lot of structure. So I'm, I'm curious how you've done that. Because I noticed that a lot of guys that I've interacted with, you know, even if they're business owners or the executive space, sometimes have a unhealthy or damaged relationship to discipline. And so I'm curious what you've done to build some structure into your life and to create some discipline within your life. You know, probably my own therapy helped and my, you know, obviously my own, I've had three coaches I worked with, but Brene Brown and her work on shame and vulnerability, I just, I'm done shaming myself for not being good at everything. Mm. And so I'm finally free. I'm free from shame and Brene's writing and just my work with my clients. I, I watch people feel trapped by their own shame. It's just, shame is just such a powerful barrier that when I sit down with a you know, a computer and and try to write something, I have to have hours because it just doesn't, I don't know how people do it. They sit and things flow. The book writes itself. That never happened to me. I have, I have to create the environment for my brain to calm down or get excited enough. Hmm. So I will, I'll go away. I'll spend three days away at a, you know, beautiful retreat place or a lake house or something. And I give myself permission. Maybe I'll only write two pages in those three days, but I'm I'm creating that space and then momentum builds. I can't do two hours a day, seven days a week. That's not my personality. Hmm. I try to create blocks of time where hopefully that creativity. But the way creativity happens, Connor, maybe you found this, is if you take care of yourself. You need to work out. You need to sleep well and eat well because anything that's not allowing your natural processes to function well are going to impede that People don't think about creativity and sleep or eating. Mm. 
when I eat too many carbs or eat poorly, it affects everything. I don't know how other people do it, but it just dampens my all that beautiful potential that I have inside of me is it just dampens it. The late night eating, disrupting the sleeping patterns, the screens before Everything. bed. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've had to put a lot of structure around most of those things just to, and again, like I think at first, I you know, I used to see discipline as a punishment, right? And so I think that's where the shame really came in, right? It's like if I didn't do something, if I didn't wake up and I said I was going to, then it justified punishing myself verbally, emotionally, et cetera. And that, you know, that sort of created the shame spiral. And so shifting discipline from something that I saw as a punishment, you know, if I didn't do what I said I was going to do into a practice, you know, something that I was working on and working with and getting better at and honing and sharpening that, that mind shift of I'm going to approach discipline from this vantage point because the other one's clearly not working, right? That story, (laughs) that story, that narrative, that discipline is a punishment. It's like that. That stuff's nope. not working for me. It's not going so well. And so shifting into this direction of I'm going to practice this on a daily basis gave me some room to actually see what type of structure would work for me, right? So Wonderful. rather than following, you know, Jocko Willing's structure of waking up at 4.30 in the morning and, you know, doing this specific workout and and following this very – is that the Navy SEAL guy from that's, Extreme Ownership? Yeah, that's yeah. the Navy SEAL guy, right? <laughs> Instead of like following oh, I that. Know. <laughs> I love that book, but I just, I, wow, they're amazing. Well, yeah. some I, I do think that some men are wired like that, you know. Where, A lot of men are. Where that, that type of rigid adherence to a discipline or a structure can be really rewarding and liberating for them. And for me, it's just not. For me, it's like I will go kicking and screaming. It makes me miserable, you know. So I need to have... I need to have like a couple hours in the morning where I have optionality to play a little bit, right? So it's like, okay, I have an hour to do some stretching, do some yoga, do some meditation, do some journaling, but it's not going to have to happen in a very sequential order. That to me is just... How did you figure that out? I mean, that's where I... If we could just get men to find that, whatever, that awareness, that access to that, that would be a beautiful gift for them. How did you find it? It was a lot of trial and error, like years of trial and error, you know, where I really, I, when I, I remember when I first got into like the personal development, had a therapist was going through this initially, I found myself trying to, trying to fit into like the Tony Robbins power hour that you have to do these things in order, or I was, I was trying to be very militant with it. And so I just gave myself permission to sort of explore and, and see what would work. And so it was really just trial and error. I don't, yeah. Yep. Yeah. What about you? I, and I want to say to all of your audience, please, men, um, therapist, find a good therapist, first of all. They're bad ones, just like any field. But spend some time on, you know, talking and processing your life. It's worth it. You're worth it. First, do that, right? So let's just be, be wiser about that stuff. And if not a coach, um, therapist, a mentor, you use that word. Mm-hmm. So it's, let's be, let's be wise, you know, let's be thoughtful and take access. So I'd say that's great. Good job. What, uh, what have you found for yourself in building that structure on a daily basis that's worked really well? You know, because of my right brain creativity, I've avoided this, this word of habits, but I really like the work of James Clear and, and, and Atomic Habits and then Charles uh, Newrig, I think I can't say his name right, and the habits. So I'm, I'm starting to embrace that around the things that don't come naturally to me. Hmm. They feel constrictive on the things of my strengths, but 
the things that are not natural to me, I, I really need that. So I, I liked your word habit. I've been trying to figure out how to find habit, rhythms of habits in my life that will reinforce uh, the structure that's not natural. I've tried to turn them into rituals and that's, I've, I don't like the word habit either. I've, I've moved them to rituals. I'm like, yeah, I got my morning ritual, right? Rather my go. morning habits. And that, that feels much more congruent for me. Actually, James Clear writes that really goals are not what you want. It's systems. It's a system of habits. And I, I love the ritual to create a, a system that contains that. And maybe it's just giving yourself that two hours in the morning or whatever, if you have that luxury. I mean, how nice is that? Yeah. Well, I mean, those the systems are it. Or I can't remember where I heard it, but somebody said uh, the, the most organized organizations win. And so, you know, it's just that notion that the most structured and systems-oriented teams or uh, operations or individuals even will will excel. But I want to come back to this notion of leadership and maybe close off this this conversation around leadership as a currency, which I think you've talked about before, and just kind of unpack a little bit around what you mean by that, why leadership is a currency, and, and how do we actually start to work with that currency? Yeah, thanks for thanks for bringing that back. Um, I, I started when I started working, you know, out of the clinical space into the corporate organizational space. I, I kept saying, "What's going to be my thing?" Because I'm a I'm a shrink. I I don't know anything about business. I still don't know much about business. And I really got fixated on this idea of leadership. I was great at helping people self lead, right? So lead themselves better through therapy. And now I I was looking at leadership in the workspace, and wow. This is in the late 90s, early 2000s. There was just an absence of leadership. And people didn't, in my estimation, Connor, people didn't uh, value it. Mm. They, they valued management. Like, like you said, um, Jim Collins talks about uh, good to great, that disciplined companies do discipline action and discipline thought. So they understand setting expectations and managing people, but really leadership and often leadership was void of self-leadership. It was just leading others to do as you demand rather than being. You know, most leaders, the effective leaders I work with, people follow them because of who they are more than at least as much, if not more than what they do. Hmm. I'll say that again. People follow you because of who you are more than what you do. And that's that just isn't a common held belief. People think they follow me because I'm successful. Eh. They might follow you for a while because you're successful, but they really don't. They follow you because they believe in you, like mm. you, your credibility. The value of that, if you can enroll your teams, your your constituents of your organization, your nonprofit, your any any company you work in, to see you and value you, the value of that is is priceless. And I I just want to elevate leadership as a currency. It's it's. Currency is just the value you put on something. And I think leadership has far too long been devalued as a role. It has very little to do with the role. Hmm. Early in your career, it's sort of defined by the role, but that's the first level of leadership, you know, role definition. But after that, it's all influence. Yeah, so, so, so a good amount of, so shifting from that, leadership is what you are versus what you do. Right. So some of that work and understanding whether or not we are an effective leader is about looking at who are we and self-understanding in a way and being able to come into contact with the aspects that 
maybe are not so effective or efficient or <laughs> the unsavory parts, right? The, I mean, the shadow, right? This, uh, I talk a ton about the, the shadow for, for this exact reason. How do you recommend, you know, individuals begin that process of orienting themselves to really understanding how effective they are as a leader within themselves, like how effective they are within their self-leadership? Well, the first is that you got to be willing to invest in yourself. A lot, most people, again, it's an external locus of control. They want to control what's outside of them rather than inside. So self-regulation is our best asset as a leader, being mm -hmm. able to identify our emotions and our behaviors, take care of our own inner resources and leverage them for the good of others. If we would just accept the principle that investing in ourselves is a wise move and it's really our the best thing you can do as a leader is be a great human, mm. the absolute best thing. The next best thing, of course, or close is uh, competency. Be, be really good at what you do. We need both. So, <clears throat> but one without the other. We all know nice people that aren't competent. They're good people. They care about people, but they don't have a clue what they're doing. And that's super annoying, right? <laughs> yes. It's just super annoying because you think, what do you, what, what's going on here? You know, take a class, do something, read a book, anything, just get better. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, in my field, what I end up most with are really competent people that are assholes, mm -hmm. right? That just, they can't get over themselves. And it's it's insecurity. You know that. Your wife probably tells you that. It's, mm -hmm. it's insecurity manifested through competitive ways or fear. So just realize your leadership currency, the currency of leadership is super valuable. I mean, we value sports athletes. You know, they're, Tom Brady is going to make $370 million a year to be an analyst. We value that for crying out loud. The thing that he's best at, I think, is leading teams. I think he's a, his, one of his best assets is leadership. He's, he's an okay athlete. Sorry, Tom, but he just knows how to lead, and he's really good at what he does. Don't get me wrong. But mm. So those are my ideas. Would you say that men and women lead differently, and would you say that within the self-leadership aspect of it, that men and women lead themselves in different ways. Yeah, I would say the the latter more than the former. I don't I think men and either men or women can make great leaders or bad leaders. Hmm. There's no gender bias there. It really isn't. It's what I what I worry about men is they're too masculine and what I worry about women is they try to be too masculine. <laughs> so right? It's just, just be yourself. Like be we, I did a one of my doctoral students when I was uh, mentoring students did her dissertation on the emotional intelligence between men and women, and so we did a, did a thesis together. I was her supervisor, and she found there was really no difference. Me, the the null hypothesis was men had less emotional intelligence than women, right? Because <laughs> that's what we we're told. Yeah. In our study, that actually didn't turn out to be true, but we did have different. Like our capabilities were wired around different things, like assertiveness and and decision-making versus empathy and self-awareness. Mm -hmm. So those aspects of emotional intelligence were different based on gender. But if we're, le if we're good and we lead from who we are, men or women can do great. Mm. Sure, we're different, but as men, we're different. We come from different families, different cultures, different parts of the U.S., right? Mm -hmm. Men from the south and men from the north and east. It's just and you, got the, you got the Canadian invasion over here. <laughs> <laughs> well listen doug this has been uh this has been a blast I, I appreciate you and your insight and just this conversation around leadership just as we close off is there anything else that you want to leave the listener with and and where can they find you yeah so uh 
My favorite, my mantra in life is have the courage to be imperfect. Just have the courage. It takes courage to be to be imperfect because we are imperfect. So why don't we just have the courage to say it? So that's what I'd like to leave you with. Uh, Doug at DLM Pathways is my email. DLM Pathways is my current website. It's going to be launching a new one under DougMcKinley.com. Um, that's a way to reach me. But yeah, I think have the courage to be imperfect, which is yourself. Mm. <laughs> Awesome. Love that. Well, thank you so much for everyone that tuned in this episode. As always, uh, if you enjoyed this episode, share it with someone that you know will enjoy it as well. And don't forget to leave us a rating and review on whatever platform you're tuning into uh, the show on. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. 